Welcome to episode 11 of the ABA and PT podcast. What a delight I have for you today as I interview Jack Orman, a precision teacher amongst so many other things, and the humblest guy you'll ever meet, who shared with me as follows. It is humbling to be around all of you great people in this community, and it's gratifying to have helped Og and Steve and others in some fashion. Of course, when he mentions Steve, he means Steve Graff, Jack's brother-in-law, who together with Og were the Zero Brothers. In this episode, Jack talks of his own journey to precision teaching after meeting Steve and the adventures they go on together. After we finished recording, Jack suggested that precision teachers' impact on students is similar to the butterfly effect. He said precision teachers are butterflies whose initial changes are making enormous positive outcomes. The butterfly effect, as I found, comes from the discoveries of Edward Lorenz, a mathematician who worked in the field of meteorology and realised that small changes in initial conditions in the weather can lead to vastly different outcomes a few days or weeks later. In common usage is the idea that an event as small as the flap of a butterfly's wings can change the course of history. And what a beautiful analogy to precision teachers that is, that their impact can change the trajectory of a student's life and all the flow and effects that come from that. It's a very personal analogy to the impact that Dr. Kimberly Behrens has had on my own daughter and all the flow and effects that have come from incorporating precision teaching into her life. This analogy plays out throughout this podcast, starting with the impact that dad had in fostering his love of mathematics. Jack eventually became a math teacher and taught for more than 30 years. Having just seen the sequel to Top Gun, I don't think Jack would mind me saying that he was the ultimate wingman to Steve and you'll hear wonderful adventures that they went on together. I'm delighted to bring you Jack Orman. Well, this is a huge honour. I still can't believe that I reached out to Jack and he said yes to be on this podcast. I'm very, very honoured to welcome Jack Orman to the podcast. Yes. And uh, lots of the community will know who you are, but I will um, let you introduce yourself by telling us firstly um, a little bit about your upbringing and your schooling. Could Could you start with that? Many thanks for having me, and I would love to. I was uh, I was born in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, in 1948, and Youngstown is on the eastern side of Ohio. And a good way to kind of see it would be to find Cleveland, Ohio, and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and it's kind of kind of in the middle. In the middle, right? And, um, I know where you are? Are you still there? I'm about five miles south in a little Boardman Township. But we all the townships kind of say we're from Youngstown because most of us were born and we just kind of migrated outward. But yeah, Youngstown was at that time was a big steel town and big industrial town. So most of our dads were either working in the mill or working in an industry associated with the mills. And my my mom was a hardworking 24-7 mom who raised four girls, my sisters and my and uh, me. I, I tease people out of the 24 hours, I think 23 were needed to keep me kind of on the, <laughs> on the straight and narrow. Good, yeah, on the straight and narrow. I was a good boy, but I was just kind of active and into everything. And yeah. um, I, if I could just share a fond memory of her, my mom loved Broadway musicals, West right. Side Story, South Pacific and so on. Yeah. And she, during, she'd be doing dishes and singing Hello, Dolly. So that's when you asked me to kind of uh, talk yeah, about. That, that's one of your memories. That's a fun memory. Yeah, among I know that song very well. My mom used to sing that too. Yeah, very well. And, and my dad was, uh, worked at the, a steel mill and he was a shipping clerk. Right. 
So he was involved with numbers and tonnage and so on and getting trucks scheduled in to get the steel and everything. He was also meticulous at home about keeping track of our finances. Right. Where the electric bills and gas and insurance and everything. And I think that might have rubbed off on me. And there was a neat thing that he taught me that I would love to share that kind of really made me kind of like a butterfly effect, a little thing difference later, square roots before there were calculators with um, with just a pencil and paper. I, I would have been probably 11 or 12, so fifth or sixth grade, right in that range. And I was good in math in elementary school and good at long division and the basics. And he showed me, Mandy, this algorithm on doing square roots that just sort of knocked me out of the water. Right. And he gave me a problem and I followed the algorithm, gave it to him. He said, okay, you got that one. Give me another one, dad. And I was just shocked that there was another kind of mathematics that would do backward squaring. Mm-hmm. And um, then I said, dad, they can't all come out to be an even number. And I said, what do you do if it's like the square root of 37? He said, just add a decimal point and add pairs of zeros and get the next decimal and the next decimal. So I started doing that. And I said, Dad, this isn't coming out. And that was my introduction to irrational numbers. Numbers that don't have a pattern. I was just like, give me another one, Dad. And so Wow. So did he foster a love of math in you? He, He did. He did. So I started kindergarten in the Youngstown Public Schools and went right through to 12th grade. And math was my favorite. And I loved doing it. And lucky enough to kind of understand that reading was reading was tricky for me. But there's a teacher that I would love to bring up in the podcast that was another inspiration in in 11th grade, Algebra 2. It was because of Miss Wilson that I became a math teacher. When I watched her teach and how she moved and carried herself, I wanted to be just like her. Yeah. And just a quick little story with uh, Miss Wilson. She yeah. gave us a challenge problem for over the weekend. I worked and worked and worked and I thought I got it. So Monday came up and she said, well, did anyone have a chance to work on it? And I kind of I kind of put my hand up slowly <laughs> And she, she came over and looked at my paper and she, she said, Jack, go put that on the board. And I did. And my heart was beating like, a, you know, 200 beats a minute. Yeah. And um, she looked at it. And she wasn't one to pass out a lot of criticism or praise. And she said, that's really good. And I was like, wow. that's like- <laughs> Mandy, I'm still beating. Wow, fantastic. And then from the, I graduated in 1966 and from the Youngstown Public Schools, I went to, I enrolled at Youngstown State University where Steve Graff eventually began teaching. Right. And majored in math, minored in physics, minored in uh, education and got an Ohio teaching certificate right. uh, for, for seven through 12. And there were two teachers that I want to just cite real quickly at yeah. YSU my non-Euclidean geometry teacher was another one who just, I, I thought Euclidean geometry was the end of the road. Yeah. And I, I thought, what is non-Euclidean geometry? 
And he brought to life a whole new dimension of math where you could take an idea that Euclid have and take the negation and work with that negation with the laws of logic and make a whole new geometry that was valid and applicable. So many thanks to him and my... And what was his name, Jack? Professor Frank Ciotola. Right. Just, I, I can see him as we speak. Wow. And, uh, Dr. Bernard Yoswick was my honors uh, calculus teacher and then my senior year advanced calculus um, teacher and just a great role model. And he, uh, thanks to him, he got me an assistantship at the University of Cincinnati. And that's where I finished up my formal education, wow. getting a, a master's degree in mathematics. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> That's a fantastic story. I love that you can still remember their names. Wish I could remember one of my university professor's names, but that's incredible. So you had this love of math fostered early on by your father and then clearly a big smarty pants that... Um, but eventually, so you graduated and went on to teaching? Right, right. Yeah. After, after graduating from Cincinnati, I, my draft number, at that time they had a lottery number for the draft. Oh, yeah. And, and I, my lottery number was up and I, had, I was out of exemptions. So I went up and I failed my physical. And this was late August and I came back kind of in a panic. But I was lucky enough, a job opened up like a few miles down the road in a high school, a local public high school um, for uh, geometry and applied math is what they called it then. And I just, I, I went ahead and took that job and I stayed there for 30 years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Goodness. Just a, let's see. I think I mentioned earlier to you in an email that I got into coaching cross country and track. Yes. And I did that for Actually, around Bob 50. Washam. Bob Washam told me that. So had you been a runner before that? I had not. What happened was the one of the other math teachers was coaching cross country. Right. And um, we had all our, the three of us math teachers had all of our desks together. Ron was his name. He said, Jack, I could use some help setting up the meets and maybe timing the kids and watching what was going on. And um, he had me do some running with the kids while I was helping. And he left the district a couple years later. So I kind of felt, well, I can apply for the job and uh, did, and they awarded it to me. That was probably 1973. Yeah. And, and how long were you a... Uh cross-country coach for? Right about 15 years. Wow. So, so, so much self-taught? Yes. Well, I, this coach helped me. Yeah. He imparted a lot of his knowledge. And then yeah. I, I started to just call other coaches in the area yeah. and they gave me some ideas. And what, what really, really got me into running when I started that coming season with the kids, I thought we would do maybe three or four days of like five to 10 mile aerobic runs. And then maybe a couple of days with maybe some speed work and pace work and fartlek and different kinds of things. So when I would send the kids off to do like a seven miler, yeah. I, I was bored because yeah. I was started to watch and was just sort of waiting. And I figured I might as well jump in. And I, 
I started running and I was, I just was enamored of running. Yeah. Yeah. Great. And like, what sort of distance did you run? My favorite track race was the 800. I just loved that. It was just long enough that you didn't have to be lightning, lightning quick. Yeah. But it had had a little speed for a kick. But I also loved 10K distance run. I ran further than that a couple of times, but the, but the, uh, the 10 K was, I love that distance. Yeah. And is there a track in the town? There's a track right in the town. We're blessed. The, yeah. the township in which I live has a, I, I can walk to the track. It's maybe a mile and then I can jog up there, walk up there. And now I don't run anymore, but I strictly walk, but we're yeah. blessed with a lot of good tracks in here. Oh really? And is there an indoor track as well? Uh, we have, very small indoor track at our local YMCA. Right, right, right. Uh, YSU, a track that's kind of devoted to their track and cross country and sports teams. But I think there's a time, I haven't looked into it, that the public can go into and and run the track up there. Yeah, I've just been watching the uh, Diamond League at Eugene. What an incredible track that is, (laughs) right? Yeah, fantastic. Anyway, sorry, I got you off track there because I, I also love that. Oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> that's, a, that's a long distance for me. I prefer to stay at the 100 mark, but 800 is an incredible race to run. So, so here you are taking up running, teaching math. What did you find worked for you as a math teacher? The n- number one thing that Og taught me, and I didn't know it at this time, and I yeah. maybe stumbled on it accidentally, was learn the student's name. Yeah. And, and I would spend the night before the first day of classes with a sheeting chart, uh, excuse me, a seating chart so that I could have their names. Yeah, right. And number two, I think patience and then lots of practice lots of on, practice. On, on getting called fluent now on, on tool skills and basic skills. Yeah. The other thing was using a, an overhead projector just made things so much easier. Yes. Yeah. We'll save the story about Steve in the show notes. We'll also link to the, his website, but he was really into learning students' names when he had a particular method of learning the students' names I read. Did, did you know that? I did know that. Yeah. I mean, I knew he had it. I'm kind of half remembering yeah, what he did there. Well, he did the same as you. He had a, a seating plan. But then he would also free think students' names and qualities or something. I have to go back and read my notes again. But, um, yeah, he was the same thing. He was very disciplined around learning students' names. And I think that, yeah, incredible to be able to refer to the student by person. Yeah. I, I, I had a funny story along these lines. One day I came in. It was the second day of school after they had been there once and we had gotten organized. And the second day I came in and I said, well, today is my day to take a quiz. And I was so nervous. I went around the room and thankfully I got like 25 out of 25. And they started to clap. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was was such a warm feeling when they did that. Nice. This is something you have to master again every year, of course. Correct. Yeah. (laughs) Do you think it got easier over time? I think it did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Practice, practice, practice. Exactly. <laughs> so you mentioned Og there. 
we're on a precision teaching podcast. So at what point did you become aware of precision teaching? Let's see. I, there's a little bit of backstory. I started teaching at South Range and coaching track. And my sister, Carol, started to date Steve. I was still living at home and uh, Carol was there. And all but, but my older sister had married. Where do you sit in, in between the girls? I'm second. The second. second right? Jane and then me. So Steve and I became acquainted and we were like both baseball oh, right. uh, hooked on baseball. Right. And Steve invited me to, uh, to become a scorekeeper in the league in which he played. Right. And Mandy, I loved scorekeeping baseball. When, yeah. I, when I was like 10 for Christmas, I asked, could I get a scorekeeping book? This was like 1958 because I'd love to listen to the radio and keep, yeah. keep track of the teams. Yeah. And so Steve and I were really uh, passionate about um, uh, baseball. And it, oh, you know, I mean, I lived in America for a year and I, yeah, I lived in Indiana. So I, whenever I could, I got along to the baseball. I also love baseball. Why is it, though, that baseball is so hooked up in stats? Why do you think that is? Almost more than any other sport, right? Uh, yeah, I think just because there's so many things you can stat. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and and now it's even crazier with how many times did she hit a ground ball? How many times did he look at a curveball and let it go by? And it, there's almost, oh, when you listen to a game now, yeah. right, right. Yeah. And that was just Steve, his love of statistics and data and when we worked on his, I'm getting ahead of myself now. I'll, I'll come back on that. <laughs> Here you are. So what was the name of the team he, he played for? He played for the Eastside Civics. Right. And then later, he was always innovative and he loved heroes. So he said, Jack, let's start a team of our own that we can kind of have our, our own rules and way we want to do things. And we called it the Zoros, based on that right. that, that character that would uh, sort of a of superheroes came from. Is this something he had as a child, a young child, or that was my understanding? Yeah. He just always loved the Lone Ranger and the TV series and and, and everything. Yeah. And, and so, like like you were saying, Steve was just loving loving baseball, basketball, loved to run, loved yeah. to golf, loved watching football. And he bought one of the first desktops, and it was a TRS-80 right. with like 8K memory, just minimal. And he said, Jack, why don't you try to program some sports simulations? So we, we made a little uh, baseball. We started with a baseball simulation, and we would enter the stats from, for Steve's team and my team and to start the program running, and it would give a little text broadcast of the game. So-and-so oh. strikes out, and that we would love to do that for entertainment. And then that evolved, in the, the next program was a basketball simulation and a football simulation, and Steve had all these marvelous ideas. And I was lucky enough to learn enough programming to incorporate his ideas in our games. Checking my timeline, here's where we, we bridge into precision teaching yeah. or the standard acceleration chart. Just remind me, Jack, uh, what year is this? 
We're right in the early 80s, 81, 82. Right. Steve said, can you write a program on the Apple II that we have? We, we graduated into an Apple II. Yeah. And Steve said, Jack, do you think you can write a program? And I'm going to call it, Steve's going to call it Precision Decisions. And I'd say, I would love to if I can. I'm not sure if I would know how to do that. And he said, here's what I needed to do and listed the requirements that he wanted. And I started on it and he would look where I, how far I was and he'd say, okay, we need to, you need to do this, this, and this. Did you know about the chart? Steve was obviously using the chart. Did you know much about it? This is when I started to, okay. to see it. You're right. Yeah. He asked me to join him at the Orlando Precision Teaching Conference. That was in 1983, to be a little more clear. Yeah. Mandy, the program, Steve ran the program and did the whole presentation. And I was just kind of in the background if it crashed or something or needed a <laughs> So we got it running. And he told the participants they had a standard acceleration chart and a pencil. Yeah. And Steve gave a little talk and everything. And he said, what we're going to do is have a program that will generate data, the frequency, a daily per minute count per day. And you are to chart it. And then we'll give you, I'll press the return key and another frequency will come up and you're to chart that on day two. And then he told the participants, if you think we need, I, I, would the appropriate word be an intervention? Because the data is dropping or the acceleration is dropping. And he said, I, I need you to yell out if you think we need to make a change line or a change point. So it was working. It worked real nice and it, it would have bounce within it and there'd be a particular acceleration, which was not, this was not showing up on the monitor. Right. Of the computer, only the data points. And they'd yell right. out, hey, Steve, and he'd hit, a, he'd hit another key and the data would change then. And they would continue the process until they got the idea or Steve got far enough on what he wanted to do with it. And during the programming, Steve had to help me learn what acceleration meant and bounce and so on. And that is where um, I also met Og. Because he came and was watching watching me kind of tweak the program before Steve's presentation and fine tune it and was just enjoying the fact that we were thinking in those terms. Yeah. And we kind of figured out a few years later that the three of us might make a pretty good little team. And we started a company called Zero Brothers. Yes. So this is quite famous. So <laughs> I, I, what did you think of Og when you first met him? Were you enamored by him? And Exa- Loved him. Yeah. Loved him. Yeah. He was just so unique and just Loved him. One of my other interviewers said he he had high rate behavior, which I think, (laughs) yeah, I guess that would have been Carl Koenig, you know, like he was just busy, did a lot of stuff. Yeah. I think that's what Og liked about our programming too. There was a lot of detailed work in there and he liked us work on it and liked to see us work and type in code and things like that. What was the goal of the software? Of the program, I should say. I, I thought it was just to help the participants see when a change was needed. Yeah, yeah. 
Nice. And, and, and what happened to it? I think that that was it. it. We never sold We never even tried to sell it or market yeah. it or anything. We probably shared it with some folks, but we, we never extended it or found a second version of it or decided on anything else from that. And having got in contact with the chart at that point, did you start using the chart for anything yourself? I, I started using it with my students at yeah. school. It might not have been exactly at that on that in 83, but yeah. several years after learning SAP meds and practice sheets, I started to use it with them yeah. and charting SAP meds were daily. And once in a while, if I thought we needed to go back and review a tool skill or build up some fluency, we, we would chart those too. Great. And so tell us about the Zero Brothers. We called ourselves the Zero Brothers because when Steve and I started our team, Steve wanted the number zero. And we called Steve was called Zeke. I was called Zach. And Steve assigned Zach the number zero. And then Og was called Zog. And we asked Dog, what number do you want? And he just, within a second, 0.0. So we were, that's how the Zero Brothers got going. What it. Wow. Steve had, I mean, I just, from reading him, John Eshelman did me a beautiful favor by sending a lot of stories about Steve to me. This guy was a real character, right? He said he was the, uh, the 21st century Lone Ranger is how uh, John described him. Perfect. Yeah. What was it like to be around him? Just, oh my goodness, ineffable. Yeah. <laughs> he was just the gentlest soul on planet Earth, yeah. yet could always get his point across very clearly. Never, never threatened anyone. Yeah. He and Carol, my, whom he married, were they were perfect. Both quiet incredibly quiet, Carol even more quiet than Steve. And they were like the perfect fit and three wonderful daughters, Kim, Allison, and Steph. Yeah. And they what they all played basketball at an elite yes. level, didn't they? Yes, they did. Uh, Kim played at Kenyon at Division Three College, uh, Allison at Mount Union, and Stephanie at Ohio Wesleyan. And Steve's granddaughter, Jackie, is uh, just started her first year of college, and she's at a Division One school in Connecticut. Wow. Um, Quinnipiac is the name of her school. Right, right, right. And it, it's no coincidence that they were um, very good at basketball, though, is it? Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, I stopped the story of the Zero Brothers there. What did the Zero Brothers get up to? What did you do as a um, as a trio? We made a uh, combo okay. coach program. Yes, yes. Uh, we a couple of practice sheeters, and Steve on his own made a SAP meds producer. We have those coming down the pike in the podcast, right? Yes, absolutely. I'm going to talk to those. Do you want to talk firstly about Combo Coach? What what was that? Oh yes, Combo Coach was Steve's brainchild on the. His idea of he was always thinking outside of the box for new stats. And with his daughters being involved in basketball, he thought coaches would want to know, how is my team doing when a certain group of five players are in? 
Right. And what happens if you take two girls out and put two new young ladies in? What does that combo do? And in a second direction, he wanted to know, how does the team do during the whole game if Kim plays versus Kim not playing? So he asked me, do you think we can make a program that will do that? And I said, I, I, I think we can. It just seems perfect for, the, for something the Zero Brothers could do. Steve designed Time Tracker, which was a sheet of paper designed to collect the data of what was happening in the game. Right. So a manager or an assistant would do the time tracker. And then that data could be entered after the game or during the game. If you had a manager that could type real quickly or an assistant and could enter the data quickly. And then our program would give printouts that would say, okay, when players one, two, three, four, and five play, here's how many points the team scores Here's my, how many points the team allows. And then it would sort the data in different fashions and get all the combos correct. And then it would go through the data again and just look at how did the team do when Steffi played? Wow. And how did the team, when she was in the game, and how, was, how were things going when she was not in the game? And how and then, quickly would this data be available? Like, could you use it through the game or would it be analyzed after the game? You could use it during the game if you had all the equipment set up and you had a student to run it. Right. And if you had a printer hooked up that could do do the printouts. Wow. So it's sort of tell you who's your ideal team given where you're at in the game. Exactly. Wow, this is really far ahead of its time, right? Because Exactly. Nowadays, you know, they use neural networks and things like that for predictive tools. My ex-husband did that to predict hull design for yachts. But, I mean, that is like cutting-edge stuff now. So this is back in the 80s when uh, that's pretty out there stuff in that time, correct? Correct. And as an interesting uh, follow-up story, Stephen Ogg sent me to the 1984 Men's Final Four basketball tournament in Seattle that year. And we were trying to market the combo coach and Og and Steve had developed programs and they helped me with the printouts to make sure that they look real orderly and easy to read. Yeah. And we got, they got me a kiosk in the convention center where the finals were being held. Yeah. And we had the brochures up and we had the printouts up. And what we found in the three or four days that we were there, we had almost no one look at the stuff. Wow. And I think, and we, when I got back, I said, Og and Steve, we, we didn't really get much action. And they both thought what you just said, it was just so far ahead of the time that coaches weren't into analytics then and didn't really want to have a computer printout, tell them who should be playing, and yeah. who should be sitting. Yeah, right. Rather use their coach's intuition. And like, did, do those kind of programs exist today, presumably? I haven't checked real deeply, but I did notice just recently that the NBA in their box scores have like what Steve called the sit and play. The score of the game when so-and-so played, yeah. number of points for, number of points against. 
So yeah, I think that's yeah. That the, the technology, concept. the technology has moved on. Right. Yeah. So tell us. We talked about convoy coach. Then you, you talked a little bit about typing coach as well. Typing coach, right? That came a little before the. Yeah. And typing coach was again Steve's idea when he was trying to teach himself how to type, and we weren't. We didn't have a Macintosh. So there was no clock built into the Apple IIe at that point. Right. But, but what Steve did, Mandy, was to create 24 sentences that had all 26 letters. Right. So that was our the basis of what the user would see. And then when the sentence popped up, she would just start typing, and the and the typing coach would count every keystroke correct and everyone incorrect. Steve and I devised um, the printout, which showed every what every finger did, how many correct with the pinky on the right hand, pinky on the left. Wow, um, you could see where the arrows were showing up. Yeah, exactly. And then he then part of the printout that they de- that they devised and we programmed was letter by letter, how many hits on the X and how many misses on the Q and so on. So you had this, and Steve went, went through, followed up by charting every, every possible piece of data that the teaching coach or the typing coach would, uh, would provide. Wow. And so that would, what would come out of that? Would it be recommendations on what to work on? What? You, he decided that on his own. Yeah, the, right. the program, that would have been a nice second version. And do you, do you remember how many how would you, keystrokes per minute would be fluency for typing? I am not remembering that. Yeah. I, I, I am remembering that, well, I'm sort of remembering that Steve got up to like 100 characters per minute. I, I, I shouldn't say yeah. that. I better not say yeah. anything there. That's any choice. <laughs> <laughs> He probably has some charts remaining. There's a lot of charts on his website, right? You can go and have a look at. There are, and there are many more still in his basement that Carol's not sure what to do because when we did his archives at uh, Youngstown State, they had limited space on how much they could take. And it's still lots of charts? Yes. Wow. Yes, we thought probably in the thousands when we were working down in the basement. Wow, amazing. This is a busy guy, right? Was, did, he ever, did he ever sleep? I don't think he did. <laughs> I, there's some really great videos for anybody that wants to learn more about him on his website. I'll, it'll be linked in the show notes. But um, so many awesome videos of him. But one of them is where he created his own golf course in his backyard, right? His own 18-hole golf course. But they were shortened holes. Is that right? Absolutely. <laughs> that is the greatest. Uh, that was another great project, Steve. Did he was able to find in the area or maybe in a catalog yeah. an artificial green? Yeah, right. And, he put and that it's in the ball, right? Exactly. A little plastic, but they had they still had grooves like a golf yeah. ball does. It doesn't he, he put this miniature green in his backyard and then at nine different locations in the yard were tees and you would hit the ball to the green putt in and um, devise a scorecard just for his golf course, which he called the Bigfoot golf course. <laughs> right. And did you play? I did. I did. He and I would have matches and um, 
Fantastic. Great, great fun. Yeah, what a lot of fun. Did he just use typing coach for his own purposes or did, did other people use it? Steve was the primary user and I, I'm a little fuzzy. I thought his daughters may have used it too. Right. right. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So, and then you mentioned practice Sheeta, which is um, for those people that uh, are just getting to know precision teaching, practice sheets are a big part of what we do, right? So, you know, affording people enough opportunities on one page to practice a certain behavior. Tell us about practice sheeter. The first practice sheeter was, we titled it the text practice sheeter. Yeah. And we started work on this in the 80s. And I got a chance to work with Og in the 80s on the text practice sheeter. Yeah. And I got to visit to visit him and he took the building that he had for BR Co which was in Kansas City. Yeah. And he and Nancy lived about my memory if my memory serves me about an hour away in Lawrence. Right. So Og set up two stations, two segments of the BR Co building, one for programming the practice sheeter and one for writing the documentation for the practice sheeter. So the text practice sheeter was very user-friendly and it was done on our first uh, program that we did on the Macintosh. So we were able to incorporate the menus and the Macintosh interface and the user would just type her items and item responses. And then the practice sheeter would make a printout and Og was very, very desiring to make sure that it would shuffle the items. So yeah. not only randomize them, but shuffle them. So when the teacher printed her practice sheet, every item would appear before they would start to repeat. So yeah. items then shuffled and then repeated. And Og also wanted us to really maintain the integrity of the uh, Macintosh interface with pull down memory or pull down menus and so on. Yeah. What happened to practice sheeter? Did it get, was it something that was able to be sold or? We, we did. We developed it. Uh, I'll help with the help kind of steer me on the documentation and make suggestions and so on. And then we marketed it at the, in Park City, Utah in March of 1992. Yeah. And was it sold on a disc? It was, yes, yeah, sold on a disc and there, I believe we had a data disc too. Yeah. So a teacher could keep all of her sheets on a separate uh, disc from her, from the program disc and then keep separate discs for separate concepts she was working on. Right, right, right. Fantastic. And like, was it successful? Did you sell a lot of copies? We did amongst the precision teaching community. Yeah. Did it, was it sold at IPTC or how did you distribute it? At the IPTCs. And then people could also order it from, from Steve's basement was our, kind of our manufacturing place here in Ohio. <laughs> you as a busy guy, because here you are. Uh, you're a full-time math teacher. You're also a, a track and field coach. And you've got all of these computer projects going on. And presumably Steve's keeping you busy with talking aloud all of his his amazing ideas, et cetera. This, is, this must have been a really exciting time. 
it, that's a perfect description. It was wonderful. Just yeah. never boring. And Steve and also, you, you know, they were always coming up with these ideas. And my, my brain would start spinning on, how can I program that? That looks like it'll be a nice challenge. As was the practice the sheet around the of um of a desktop, right? Very early days when they first came out. So limited capabilities for programming as well. Right, exactly. Yeah. And especially with graphics and, and tones and music. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Do you remember they used to have I, I was a Lotus 123 user and they used to have that program called WYSIWYG? which you had to lay over the top of your spreadsheet to make it look pretty. Do you ever remember that? I do, right. It was so much work. I mean, compared to the graphics that you have today, you create this very boring spreadsheet in Lotus 1, 2, 3, and then I used to work for a chartered accounting firm, so we wanted to make them look pretty. And you have to import it, WYSIWYG, over the top of it and redo all the formatting. But then if you wanted to change the spreadsheet, you had to do the whole thing again. It was like, <laughs> I can only imagine what you were dealing with there. Um, wow, that's so exciting, I guess. What became of those, those projects? We never continued on them. I, I think the feeling we had was they weren't, they just weren't ready to go to another level. Yeah. And I'm not sure how we would have even taken them to another yeah. level. Other other than we jumped from the text practice sheeter to the graphics. Yeah. So tell me about that. Yeah. It, yeah, it was it was very similar, except Aug and Steve thought maybe teachers would want to do practice sheets where Children would be working on like identifying rectangle, triangle, yeah. or right arrow, up arrow, left arrow, different graphics things. So we thought that the only way that we could do graphics at that time would be to give the, the teacher, the user, a 39 by 39 grid of little squares. Yeah. Those would kind of be the pixels. Yeah. And the teacher or parent or whoever was going to make a practice sheet would take the cursor and hover over a square that she wanted to darken. And by filling in enough of those squares, she could make the numeral two or make a signal, uh, maybe hearing impaired folks like that particular sign language, a symbol for letters and, and shapes of states, shapes of countries and so on. And we had a couple tools. It was not a real easy to use item compared to what is available now, but there were a couple tools where a circle could be drawn kind of automatically and a line automatically. And then that, and then it followed the rules that Og wanted on shuffling and so on. But, and then that was presented at um, the, I think it was the next precision teaching conference in Park City. In the following year, that would have been 1993, right? At uh, in Salt Lake City, and that, it was a joy to see the folks after we gave a little talk to see them start right away at the computers and see them creatively design what we, we never expected could happen. Oh wow, so great! And um, like when you said Og's rules for for randomizing practice sheets, like do you remember anything about that that you can share with us? in terms of how he would want the randomized sheets to appear? He wanted the teacher to have control over the printout. She could print, let's say we had 10 figures. She could print them in order first. Yeah. 
so the children could maybe learn the sequence in an orderly fashion. And then the next couple lines would shuffle them. Oh, I know so what that, you mean. So that it was really creative if she wanted, or she could have them all shuffled. So I've seen that before because I have a copy of Steve's SAFMEDS, charting SAFMEDS. Have you seen those? You know, with the different timing flaws on them. And it, I can't remember which handbook it is. I guess it's in in the charting book that he created with Og. And um, there's a whole lot of SAF meds that are attached to that manual, you know, the charting manual. And that's exactly how they start with a, an order so you can learn the timing flaws in order and then they start to randomise. So that right. that's very familiar to me. And the same with charting frequencies. So they start in an order and then, then it randomizes as soon as you've had enough practice. So there's, there's like a, a prompt fading procedure through the cards. It's, they're, they're so good. I've just done them all with my team this year and um, they absolutely love them. So I know exactly what you're meaning there. That's very and exciting. That, <laughs> that, that's a great example of Og's eye and the way he yeah. saw things. And yeah. he, Mandy, he would look at a printout and like instantly say, Jack, you need to put lines over this group and that group and that. And gosh, he was spot on. It was exact. When you yeah. followed what he wanted, the printout was like a hundred times better and clearer. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. I mean, I just remember teaching my team at the beginning of the year um, frequencies on the chart without any lines on the chart at all. It's just the position of the dot within the square. And the way that he sets out those, you can learn them straight away. Within, within a few minutes, you can immediately look, you know, at a little square and know exactly what the frequency is or almost exactly to the one number of what it was without any grids on there. Yeah, I can see the, the brilliance in how he taught there. Amazing. So then came Safmed's, a Safmed's producer as well, which I think I have a copy of. And you said you don't mind me sharing that with the users, which was, an Excel SAFMEDS producer, which is absolutely fantastic. I use it so much. I got it from Bob Washam. Thank you, Bob. But obviously <laughs> recognising, presumably you and Steve created that. Steve made the first version yeah. on, his, on his own on that. And it was, it was so, just what you said, it's so neat. So the hardest part of the SAFMEDS producer was to get the printout so that the fronts and backs yes. lined up. So that when you and turn over the card, it's, you know. They're in the, exactly. Yeah. And Steve, just like Og, had this great idea because kids would drop them sometimes and they, the fronts and backs would be hard to get lined up. And Steve, I think Steve said, let's just on the front, let's just put a double line way on the left margin. Yes. So You'll know that's the front of the card yeah. and just brilliant ideas. Yeah. And then we, uh, we updated a few years later to make, make it a little easier to use and print more cards. I think the original version would do 100 cards. Right. And then we thought maybe we should let a teacher have 150 sapment card or whatever it changed to. Yeah. And I think he presented that at, a, at the... Uh, a 1995 conference in Columbus. 
at Ohio State. Yeah. And he actually wrote a nice manual for that also. That's the manual I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm so sorry that I I will put that in the show notes. I'm sorry that I don't have the full reference because it's in my office and not next to me. Normally I would have it with me. So yeah, that is that is a beautiful manual of charting. That's what I used to train my team. How long did you keep the I guess Excel kept updating, but that that program would have kept working, would it, through all of the versions of Excel? It did not. Oh, when it they did went not. To... Okay, so I have a version of it that does work, but it wouldn't have, I think the maximum number of SAFMEDs in the version that I've got is maybe 24 that you can, yeah, maybe 24, that'd be right. That's the version that I have anyway. Of Excel? Yeah. Of the SAF meds program. Oh, of the SAF. I'm, I'm not sure on that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll still make that available because um, I think it's, it's, it's not copyrighted in any way. But that's a very, yes, very useful resource for those of you wanting to make SAF meds. It's fantastic because it randomizes them for you and you can, yeah, it's, you print one side and then double side print, you can have the opposites, which is very difficult to line up if you don't use something like that. I love that. What else? What do you want to talk about next? We have a lot of things that we have. <laughs> we, do. Already. we do. <laughs> you, you had in your notes here that you went to visit Kansas City to help with Og's archives. That's, do you want to tell me about that story? Yes. When Og passed in, I think it was 2004, there were, we knew there would be a lot of material. So many of the folks across the country and across the world were coming in to help Nancy. And um, it was nice. Everybody chipped in. And Steve and I went out. I don't remember the exact year. Yeah. And the first thing that um, jumped out at me, Mandy, was the sheer volume of stuff that yeah. needed to be. Nancy had brought it from Lawrence over to, I'm not sure if you knew that. Next to the BRK, the BRK building in Kansas City yeah. was a regular residential home. And Nancy bought that. And that the basement of that home were, was where Nancy set up this magnificent staging area to go through Og's materials and papers and artifacts. And so one part of the basement was the printer. Another part was the shelving for where the banker's box and people would come in and meticulously go through. And Nancy had purchased all the materials, the special types of folders you needed, special banker's boxes you needed, because they were going to go to Akron University, kind of near where we live here in Youngstown. Right. And so that was quite a treat. And Nancy felt that my role would be to archive or at least help archive with Og's computer materials. And that, that was such a pleasure and joy. Wow. The, the, the real uh, standout thing for me there was Og saved almost every brochure and advertisement that came down the pipe for um, computers, software, applications, uh, hardware that you could add to your computer. And that was just marvelous to go through every everything that might affect using a computer or help somehow in precision teaching. Wow. Gosh, and how long were you there for? It's in my head that we were there for about a week. Right. And we, we had the opportunity to, uh, 
to have dinner with Nancy and Scott Bourne would join us. And it was just, um, yeah, it was an amazing time. Yes. Wow. And did you discover anything that he had that you didn't know about in terms of computing things? There was an item, not sure if it connects to the computing things, but an item where Og had found an easy way to measure the statistical significance of bounce change. Right. And yet we could not find the follow-up on the details of that. And I thought that was in the computer. I could be wrong on that. So it's like piecing, it was like putting a giant jigsaw puzzle together. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Without the picture on the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us then, next you mentioned, well, we're going to jump forward a little bit here, but no, let's not do that yet because I wanted to just contribute some of the things that John Eshelman shared with me about Steve. And I, I'm hoping that you can add to it. We talked a little bit about Steve's obsession with the Lone Ranger in particular. Um, but another thing that John mentioned to me is that Steve had a really unusual dress style. And yeah. <laughs> is that very vivid in your memory? It's very vivid. And, is it um, true on a day-to-day basis or did he just do it for his students? He did it mostly for his students. Yeah. I think one of my favorite images, I never saw this in person, but many yeah. of his students, I kind of knew later, said on the first day of class, I don't know if this was every class or every year, but on the first day of class, he would get there early and he would have a custodian's uniform on and a broom. Okay, right. And this was in a big lecture hall where the class was convening. And the kids would be coming in and Steve would be sweeping up in front by the lectern and it would be getting closer to the time for class to start. And he would put the broom down, go to the lectern and introduce himself. And (laughs) that was one of my favorite images. I think that he was the cleaner. Hilarious. he loved Star Trek uniforms. He loved uh, short clip-on ties. Well, he is, also, uh, Steve told him that he used to wear short neckties and things like that so that he would become resilient to ridicule. It was like practice at being ridiculed so that he was fluent at it and, and not rocked by it. I can remember him also adding to that that he always, this is sort of the same thing, but he always wanted to know what it felt like to be different. Or be yeah. outside of the mainstream. Yeah, right. He had his students call him coach. Nice. Was another not along the dress lines, but yeah, just always thinking differently and looking at things differently. Yeah, and and from a sports mentality as well, I guess, because of his love of sport and and teams, etc. Yeah, uh, John said that he was an incredibly creative and innovative teacher. That you know, was always coming up with new ways of, of teaching things and quitting. He, he recounted that in a lecture that he taught where John was present on perception. He took them all down to the local oval and had them discriminating, different stitching on balls. I have to regret, I can see John's notes, but um, he said it was always teaching in creative ways and, um, and was just such a pleasure to be taught by. 
Right, right. And other students, Sean, Dr. Sean Datchik is a professor at the University of Iowa. He was another one of Steve's students. M- mentioned what you just said about the thing he liked about the way Steve graded was from the beginning of the course, you knew exactly what you had to do to get the letter grade you were, that was your aim. Yeah. And he just loved that. And Steve permitted you, if you could get that early, then you were exempt from the final exam. Oh, wow. And Steve designed trip logs. I'm not sure if John mentioned that yeah. to you, where you would record your daily behavior. Yeah. And those would get charted on, the, the students would chart theirs on their own. And those were incorporated into the great, the point system that Steve had set up. Yeah, right. Wow. Fantastic. He mentioned to me that mostly in um, behavior analysis, we choose um, rats and pigeons to, um, to, to, to do research on or to, or to um, teach people to shape, but he chose chipmunks and raccoons. <laughs> Is this something you're familiar with? Um, his daughter, Allison's cat, Bo. Yes. John may have not have known about Bo, but Steve trained Allie's cat named Bo to dunk a basketball. Oh, yeah. That video was on his website. Fantastic. Exactly. And then raccoons, this raccoon named, Steve named this raccoon Winnie. Winnie would come up from this ravine in Steve's backyard, about 100 meters, up to his back doorstep. Yeah. And Steve would use dog treats to reward her and feed her. And when he became regular, 6.30 or whatever, when he'd be out there waiting for her dog treats, pretty soon when his family joined. Really? The little ones would come up and there were seven or eight and Steve was sitting there. This was a, such a beautiful image with little raccoons crawling on his legs and Winnie and wow. feeding them all treats and magnificent. Wow. And the chipmunk idea was Steve would lay down motionless like spread eagle with peanut butter chips in his hand and they would come to him and actually rest in his palm yeah wow i know the the one on the his website's called og yes yeah (laughs) yeah Um, what john recounted to me is that chipmunks store food in their cheeks so they're anything but ideal you know to teach because they already have their reinforcement in their mouth. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly he was he liked to do things differently. Tell us about some of Steve's unusual chartings. You mentioned earlier when I was talking to you that he he charted UFO chartings, sightings, I should say. That was one of his favorites and mine too, because we were both interested in the extra, extraterrestrial phenomenon. Yeah. And he got his data from a place called New Fort, the National Unidentified Flying Object um, Commission, I believe, run by Peter Davenport. And what Steve noticed in 1942, during the Manhattan Project to build the first atomic bomb, if you put a change line in, in 1942, there was an apparent jump from or a turn up from times 1.2 before to times 1.5 after 1942. And there's an interesting book along these lines that I don't think Steve got a chance to read, 
but it was, I, I read it and it's entitled UFO and Nukes. And it is uncanny how many of the UFO sightings have been either at or nearby these uh, nuclear warhead launch places, silos, and so on. Lone Ranger charts was another of his favorite unusual. Yeah. He, he charted, he, he took a sabbatical from YSU and he went to Buffalo because Buffalo had a library with like everything Lone Ranger. And he came back and he just had hundreds of charts. Wow. Lone Ranger shoots and misses. And they were daily per day. Tonto rides with Lone Ranger. Tonto shoots and misses. Tonto shoots. The whole, the whole gamut of Tonto and uh, Lone Ranger behaviors that you wow. could think of. Wow. And he, he made a... Have on his on his website? I'm almost sure I put a few of them up. Yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm positive. Yeah, I checked, double-checked that yesterday. And then he, he gave a presentation after he got from, back home from Buffalo, and he gave a precision teaching at a, the PT conference in Orlando in 1988, and he called it a precision teacher. <laughs> right. And dressed up as the Lone Ranger. And his whole, uh, uh, Dr. Datchik helped me fill in some gaps here. His main idea there was to show the precision teaching or the, pre the precision teachers that they are today's Lone Rangers. Yeah. They are the heroes. They are in with the children, trying to reach them, uh, reach, help the children reach their aims and so on and grow from that. Yeah. Was, was there anything in Steve's younger life that where he was exposed to disability or like underprivileged kids or anything that, that got him really interested in teaching? Do you know? I don't. And he, if he was, he never shared that with me. Yeah. Yeah. So then we move forward. So it's nearly 11 years exactly that, that Steve passed away very sadly you mentioned here that you wanted to talk about Steve's archives at Youngstown State University. How, how did you go about archiving all of this after he passed away? This is a, a lot of charts, a lot of information. How, how did that happen? Right. Uh, my, my brother-in-law, my other brother-in-law, also named Steve, helped me for a while. Yeah. And then he had other things to do in his own job. And then his daughters helped me somewhat. On, on sorting through it. And we never were, we collected, we tried to collect some of the charts that we thought he would want yeah. in his archives and on his website. And we tried to categorize them, but we never got through all the charts in his basement. They're still there actually in, in bankers boxes and yeah. other containers. And he had videos of, Almost everything he had audio recording of every phone call that he and Ogham I had on Sunday mornings, and wow. we never got around to re-listening to every single one of them. Yeah. Uh, Steve had videotaped several of the IPTC presentations and so on, so it, it was massive. But so some of those went to the YSU archives, and yeah. or every 
classroom texts that he wrote for his own classes are up there. Some of his, the artifacts like his teacher of the year in Northeastern, professor of the year in Northeastern Ohio, all of those are also in the archives. Some of his baseball awards and civic awards are up there too. That was such a good feeling to know that they will be existing there for people to go to. And folks can, those are all, uh, at least the list of items are available. Folks can just type Steve Graff YSU archives and that will give everybody, all the listeners or anyone in the community that wants to see what's up there. And they've also, I I just looked the other day, Mandy, and they've also started to make copies of some of Steve's texts and so on. Oh, good. Available. Available. I I thought they were available because I was able to download them. Excellent. Oh, good. Okay. Well, I'll make sure that we have um, links to all of that. So I asked you if you still charted anything. What what year did you retire? I retired in 2001. 2001. And did you continue to run after that? I did for a while. And then Steve and I, the baseball bug bit us again. We joined an old timers team. And we were in when we were in that for about 10 years. And just as a quick item there, Steve threw a no hitter. Yeah. But those of us, okay, maybe there won't be many people, but Australians at least, we don't know what no hitters are. Explain to me what a no hitter is. Okay. No hitters are when the pitcher does not permit a hit over the entire duration of the game. He can allow a person to get on by a walk or she can get on by a hit by pitch or an error. Yeah, and and a, a hit would be when a fielder can't catch a ball and the runner can make it to first base. Yeah, right. And, and so they're very, they're very rare because sometimes just by luck a person might hit a ball and nobody can catch it because it's in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. And um, so after that, you you're no longer working as a coach then after you retired. Correct. Other than with the old timers team. They kind of made me the coach. <laughs> I didn't do anything. I, I played and uh, all I did was to make up the lineup. And then yeah. we were all in our 50s and 60s. So it didn't. Playing it was, at the time. Say again, please. What, how did you play? Which other teams were you playing? It, it is a phenomenon in this part of Ohio. There's yeah. like 14 other teams wow. with 10 or 15 players on them that we had this massive 20 game schedule for old timers. Wow. And, <laughs> and then, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say what, what age were the old timers generally? What sort of age range? For, we were mostly between 50 and 70. And then there were some outliers in their eighties. Wow. And if you go to some of the old timers tournaments in Florida during the yeah. fall, yeah. There's an 80 plus division down there oh. where it's all 80 year olds playing for the love of the game. Wow. How awesome. And do you still get along to the baseball? I, I'm done with baseball. You're done. You're done with baseball. So I'm, I'm back to walking four and a half to five and a half miles a day. <laughs> nice. Nice. You said that there were still two charts that of Steve's that you continued to work on. One of them, UFO sightings. And, and then the other one was, I'm, I'm trying to reduce my use of Amazon.com. Yes. So I've been charting my yearly orders and I've got them 
the most recent trend is downward. And I don't have that in front of me. I don't have that value, but I'm at least. What is it that you purchase on Amazon? I take a magnesium supplement. Oh, yeah. And there's a, there's a particular magnesium supplement, magnesium parry, that I can't find anywhere locally. So that's, that's one thing. I got a, my vacuum cleaner blew up like two weeks ago. And I did my best in lo- around the local stores, and I couldn't find what I wanted, so I did get a vacuum so cleaner. Aim in trying to reduce your Amazon purchases is what to support local business. Is that your is that your yes. aim? Perfect, I exactly. Wow, we should create a trend on that: the anti-Amazon movement. <laughs> support local business by charting your Amazon um, purchases. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> So, Jack, what are the chances that you're going to update this UFO chart, given that there is all this talk around increased sightings of UFOs at the moment? I'm absolutely planning on watching what's going to happen. I love that. We are going to have to stay in contact with you so that I can make sure that our uh, listeners have up-to-date charts. Right. (laughs) Where did Steve's interest in UFOs come from, do you think? Or was it just that he was just interested in knowledge in general? And he was just fascinated by information. That's it. Just, yeah. just loved everything. And the, I don't know quite how to phrase it, the stranger, the better, the more, yeah. which I loved. I just, because I love that too. I yeah. just, um, remote viewing, sitting out on the side of Mount Shasta or on down at the bottom of Mount Shasta, trying to vector in UFOs. How can life be any better than that? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. Wow. Well, he had an incredible life and you were a big part of that. You were sort of like his wingman. Yeah. I I, I really feel like Steve's brother, not brother-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. What a a beautiful addition to your life and and, and indirectly your student's life as well, because that would have been awesome, all of them. Um, Did you ever teach any of your students to chart? They they did. We charted our sabbats, and um, they enjoyed it. And I still have those. I probably probably was a mistake on my part. I should have given them their chart at the end of the year. So now I have hundreds of charts and <laughs> of, of your students <laughs> of my students. How lovely! What a lovely memory, though, of your work and your contribution to their lives. So nice. Well, that was fascinating. I love that. I love that we got to hear about your role and your. Did, did I miss anything in any of the stories you wanted to share? I am so thankful. We are fine. Yeah. This, this has just been, I, I can't, the time has just flown during this podcast. I looked at the clock and I thought, wow. <laughs> I know, I always I keep it an hour and then I, there's so many questions that I want to ask and I've tried not to ask too many, but how lovely because I've seen your name on, um, on Facebook I knew that you were Steve's brother-in-law, that you had a big role to play in, in the precision teaching world. But I just, it's just been an absolute delight to hear your story. Tell us how you spend your time now. I am very interested, probably at a pre-novice level of Buddhism. Oh, really? And our local, I love that concept. And I've been searching my whole life for something that would fit and I was totally comfortable with. And I think it's Buddhism. And sure. And interestingly, our Unitarian church up near where Steve taught on the north side of Youngstown at YSU, our Unitarian church, Mandy, 
is in the process of starting a Zen center. Ooh. And there, uh, we had a, a retreat, a meditation retreat, like two weeks ago for five hours on a Saturday morning. And we had 20 followers, which we thought without a lot of publicity was great. So that's, that's a big thing that I'm pushing on right now. Oh, that's wonderful. Do you have your own family? I don't. I don't. I like to think of just everyone I meet. Yeah. If I meet someone on my walk today, automatically they're in my family. (laughs) I get get the feeling that you would um, attract people very easily. It's it's a very affable and lovely, lovely person to talk to. But you stay in contact with um, with Steve's girls? I do. I do. And I... Yeah. Thank goodness his granddaughter, who who we mentioned before, uh, that's at Quinnipiac. Thank goodness her games are on ESPN three. Oh, good. Okay. And what's her name again? Sorry. Jackie Grisdale. Jackie Grisdale. Okay, I'm going to look out for her because I get ESPN here. Oh yeah, ESPN. Her mom, Kim Grisdale, is Steve's oldest daughter. Right. Okay. Cool. And what are the girls up to these days? Kim is a math teacher wow. and cross country coach at Poland <laughs> High School. Right. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> random coincidence. Yeah, yeah, wow. There you go. And, and uh, Allison is a librarian at one of our local libraries. And youngest daughter, Stephanie, is married and in Columbus, and she's an editor for a publishing company and her two little ones are who we are babysitting because they're celebrating Stephanie and her husband, Ryan are celebrating their um, 10th anniversary three years late because of COVID. (laughs) Right. Well, what is something like that? And you're taking care of the kids. I'm helping. You're helping. Allison and Carol and a couple of my other sisters are taking the Big the heavy load there. Oh, that's so lovely. And you took time out from that to um to speak to us on the podcast. Yeah, I couldn't be more grateful to you for sharing those awesome stories. We have a lot of resources to link, so I've got some work to do behind the scenes. I'm really hoping that I can come and see those archives one day and um learn more about Steve. And, and please share my email with folks too. If they if anything I've said is wrong or needs adjusted or anything they want jackalman at gmail.com is that would that would be wonderful john is great source of information but he i know that he was looking for a particular photo of steve and you might have a copy of it you never know so i'm sure he'll reach out to you so on that note i'm going to thank you so much this has been such a fantastic episode i hopefully there's some information here that people won't have heard before but it will um generate I know there's a lot of people that know Steve and his incredible contributions, but um, even more so, and we'll link to his website. And and thank you for so generously um, sharing that information. And, you know, really we wanted to hear about you, but it's impossible to talk about Jack Woman and not mention Steve's name. So it's just been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. This is such a pleasure to be with you and all the other listeners. Thank you. Blessings. And that was episode 11 of the ABA and PT podcast. I hope you enjoyed Jack's stories as much as I did and some history of precision teaching that you might not have known. I felt like I made a friend while recording this podcast and I really didn't want to say goodbye. What a warm, humble and beautiful human being Jack is. 
whose impact on the precision teaching world so beautifully compares to the butterfly effect. Special thanks to Dr. John Eshelman, as always, for sharing wonderful historical information about Steve Graff. Please subscribe to the ABA and PT podcast Facebook group to get access to resources referred to in this podcast, including an Excel spreadsheet that allows you to make SAFMEDs, shared with me by Dr. Bob Warsham and prepared by Jack Orman. I look forward to catching up with you again in episode 12, where I'm absolutely delighted to be speaking with Alison Moores-Lipshin. <laughs>